And while our kids trundle off, I'd invite you to open up to Luke chapter 7. If you're using a pew Bible and uh, you're a little fuzzy on Luke, it's page 1022. Page 1022. Open up your pew Bibles and we're going to look at Luke chapter 7. You've heard of Doubting Thomas. Well, today is the story of Doubting John. It's a great text and I didn't have time to even get through all of it. This is about three sermons here, so I'm frustrated. But I'm just going to preach one for you from part of it. It's just a great text, though. So much in it. Luke chapter 7. And we're going to focus it on verses 18 to 23. says, John's disciples told him about all these things. Calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, Those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And after John's messengers left, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written, I will send my messenger ahead of you to prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So have you ever, honestly, have you ever doubted God? Have you ever had a time in your life when you second-guessed what Christ was doing in your life and wondered uh, whether or not it was uh, really, if Christ was real and if He was really at work? Jesus, You're the King, You are the Sovereign, You are the Savior. So why is this happening? You know, we all have sort of mental uh, models, mental prototypes of what God's work in our lives should look like and how the kingdom of God should unfold. And when our experiences are at dissonance with what we think God's kingdom should be like, there's reason to doubt. Um, There's a story of a, a famous Christian, maybe you've heard of it, his name was Horatio Spafford. And he had reason to doubt what God was doing in his life. Horatio was a successful lawyer in Chicago in the late 1800s. He was also a successful real estate investor. He had bought uh, real estate all along Chicago's North Shore and was very prosperous. He was a a Christian leader in his community. Everyone knew Horatio. Uh, He he was known for his integrity, his Christian faith, his generosity. Uh, In fact, he was uh, close friends with uh, Dwight Moody, which you may recognize that name. Moody was uh, a world-famous evangelist at the end of the 18th century, sort of like Billy Graham. Everyone knows Billy Graham today. You know, back in those days, everyone in America and England and Europe knew who Dwight Moody was. 
And Horatio Spafford was one of his close buddies. So he was connected in with the Christian leadership in America uh, in those days. Uh, but despite that, a series of just tragic events befell Horatio Spafford, one after another after another. Uh, the first was around 1871, his, um, his youngest son, his son died. He had four, five children, one son and four daughters, and his son died of scarlet fever. And shortly after that, 1871, was the great Chicago fire where 100,000 people were left homeless and hundreds of people died. And Horatio Spafford lost a, a large chunk of his real estate investments in Chicago. It just went into smoldering ruins. But despite his great loss uh, and despite the recent death of his son, Horatio and his wife stayed in Chicago for the next two years helping sort of the humanitarian relief work of rebuilding the lives of, you know, hundreds and thousands of homeless people and people who were just without anything and, and he poured himself out into that. But after about two years of that tireless kind of work, I mean, he was what we might say today, burned out. He was tired, he was exhausted, he needed a break. And so Dwight Moody was going to do an evangelistic crusade in England. He said, hey, why don't you come to England with me and then just go to Europe for a little while and take a vacation with your family. And they said, yeah, we really need to take a break from all this. So uh, they arranged to go on a ship over to England. But at the last minute, some urgent business came up that Horatio simply could not put off. And so he said he and his wife decided that the wife and the four daughters would go ahead to England and he would stay back. Uh, and so in November of 1873, he, uh, his wife and four daughters went on the, uh, the ship, the Vilda, the, the Vilda Havre, and they set sail for England. And off the coast of Newfoundland, their ship collided with another ship. And within 12 minutes, their ship was gone underwater. 229 people died, including his four little girls. All of them drowned off the waters of Newfoundland. His wife miraculously survived. They found her floating on some debris unconscious. It was only 47 people lived from the crash, and that was one of them. And so Horatio didn't know what happened. You know, back in those days, they didn't have quick communication. He eventually got a telegram back from England, wondering if his family was alive at all. It was a telegram from his wife, and it had these two famous words, very famous telegram. It simply said, saved alone. And that was all. And then he set sail for England to be with his grieving wife. And, you know, you hear stories like that, and it's like, uh, Jesus, are you paying attention? <laughs> this is one of your best guys. You know, there's a lot of bad people in the world that you might think ought to deserve tragedy, but this is one of your good, this is one of your lieutenants. Here's a guy who's sold out for you, who's invested his life, his money, his everything to serve your kingdom. So why would you let him, you know, lose a son and within two years lose a son, lose his money, lose all his daughters in a horrific boat, uh, sinking? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And so we wonder, why is God working this way? Why is the kingdom of God unfolding like this? It doesn't make sense. Because our, we have expectations, we have sort of mental models of how God should be working, and when it doesn't work that way, it gives us reason to doubt. And that's what this story's about today. It's a story of John the Baptist. He's dropped out of the story of Luke for several chapters, and suddenly he's right back into it. And John the Baptist is having a moment of doubt. He's questioning the ways of God in his life. And uh, the reason he's questioning, as we'll see, is that what Jesus is doing does not fit his expectations of how the Messiah should be working. He has a certain picture of what the kingdom of God should be doing at this time, and it's not doing that. And so he wonders, are you really the Messiah? Was I wrong about this whole thing? Check it out. Look at verses 18 to 20. 
John's disciples told him about all these things. So calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come? In other words, are you the Messiah? Or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come? Or should we expect someone else? So here is uh, John doubting, which is really remarkable, because if you think of the story of Luke, next to Jesus, the biggest figure in the story of Luke, the most exalted hero, is John the Baptist. You know, he and Jesus are like this growing up in chapters 1 and 2. Their stories intertwine. John is the one who has the magnificent role of proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. John is a really lifted up kind of figure, next second only to Jesus, of course. So to hear John doubting, I mean, John, he, this is a burly, strong, wild, kind of courageous guy out in the desert preaching that people should repent. And here's John questioning now, are you really the Messiah? Now notice that he sends messengers to Jesus. Now why didn't John go himself at this point to, to ask Jesus? Anyone remember? Where's John right now in the story? He's locked up. He's in jail. Uh, in fact, look at this. Put, put a little bookmark here in chapter 7. We're going to come back to chapter 7. Turn back to chapter 3. And then put a bookmark in 3 because we're going to go 3 to 7 back and forth. And chapter 3 is important because it's the last time we hear of John. And it's the only story of him from his uh, adulthood that we have in Luke. Chapter 3 is the last time we hear of John. And then he gets thrown in jail. So if you look at Luke chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, it says, when, Her- when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch, who's basically the king, when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John's going around telling everyone to repent, repent, repent. And then he looks even to the king. This guy's fearless. Repent, he tells the king. And you know, Herod the Tetrarch, this was Herod Antipas. He was a wicked man. And basically what he had done was he fell in love with his brother's wife. Her name was Herodias. She was sort of famous for her incredible good looks and her promiscuous lifestyle, and he fell in love with her. And so he divorced his wife, and he convinced her to divorce his brother, and then he married his brother's wife. I mean, you know, this doesn't even happen on the OC, people. I mean, this is incredible kind of dirty stuff taking place. And so John says, hey, stop it! And so Herod says, jail! And that's where John is. He's in jail now. He's incarcerated He's locked up, and he's doubting. He's wondering, are you really the Christ? Uh, did I make a mistake? So going back to chapter 7 then, it raises the question, why in the world is John doubting? Why would John doubt? What has prompted his sort of change in heart? Is it because he's in prison? And I have a hard time believing that, because John is so Fearless. I mean, he's like a wild lion out in the desert. You remember the story of John? He's out in the desert. He's got camel hair garments like a prophet. He eats locusts and honey. And he's just screaming at people out in the desert, Repent! The end is near! I mean, this guy, he's no you know, shrinking violet. This is not a guy who'd be thrown in prison and be like, Oh no, I'm in prison. And he probably would like it. He was a fighter. You know, some of you would love this guy. He's like, Rah! He's crazy. In fact, go back to chapter 3. Bookmark chapter 7, go back to chapter 3. Just, again, remember some of the things he said? He was nuts! He was nuts! Look at him. Chapter 3, verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? 
produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. (laughs) For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the tree. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I mean, just... Could you imagine if you came to church and that's just the sermon you heard week after week? That's what this guy did. He stood out there and preached these crazy, fiery sermons at people. And so it's hard to imagine John being thrown off by prison. It just doesn't fit. I mean, John is so courageous. In fact, he's an ascetic. He's lived his whole life in deprivation. This is what he's used to, eating locusts and honey. So to throw him into the deprivation of prison is not going to be a radical change in his lifestyle. Let's be honest. This is John. So why does John doubt? Why does John second-guess Jesus? And I think the answer is because Jesus does not match what John expected the Messiah to be doing. Go back to chapter 7, verse 18. Notice this. Notice the logic of the text. John's disciples told him about all these things. What are all these things? All the things Jesus had been doing. So John's disciples come to him in jail and be like, oh, you got to hear what Jesus is doing. What's he doing? Well, he's you know, healing people and he's teaching and he told this sermon. He's doing this and that. And in response to what Jesus is doing... Therefore, this is the logic, he therefore then calls two disciples and says, are you really the Messiah? Go ask him that. So whatever Jesus was doing was throwing John off and making him wonder if Jesus really was the Messiah. I think John expected something else. And although we don't, we can't get into his head, that's kind of hard to psycho, psychoanalyze him and figure out what was really going on. We know what he preached anyway. If you go back to chapter 3 now, now we're flipping back. What did he preach? He preached judgment. He preached fire. He preached a Messiah who was going to come and just, you know, clean house, destroy the evil unbelievers in Israel, overthrow the Romans, establish the faithful. I mean, he preached like an apocalyptic, eschatological judgment day. That's what he expected the Messiah to do. We already read the axe and the tree thing. Look at uh, chapter 3, verse 15. Remember this? The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He loves fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff... He will, uh, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. <laughs> that's the picture John had. And in John's defense, that's some of what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. Uh, if you want to, you, look, you can look in your sermon notes, this little insert in your uh, bulletin. Hopefully you got one when you came in. It says Luke 7, 18-35 at the top. And on the front page, I listed a bunch of uh, several Old Testament texts in which Jesus, or which the Messiah is associated with judgment and wrath and fire. Uh, for instance, just look, and we'll read all these, but just look at the one at the top from Isaiah chapter 9, talking about the Messiah. He will not judge by what it, his eyes sees 
or decide by what his ear, he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And we could go on with a multitude of texts which associate the Messiah's coming with judgment on evildoers and on those who oppose God. So John's not out in left field. I mean, he knows the Old Testament. This is what the Old Testament promised. But then he looks at Jesus, and what's Jesus doing? He's teaching parables, you know, nice little stories, kind of kid stories. He's healing people, you know. He's kind of mellow. <laughs> no fire, no judgment. No one's died yet. Uh, you know, John's like, where's the death? Where's the, the judgment that's supposed to take place? And instead of marching to Rome or marching to Jerusalem and taking the powerful head on, where's Jesus? He's off at the fringe of society. Not at the centers of power. He's at the, with the most powerless. He's hanging out with the lepers. And he's out here at the fringes hanging out with the blind people. He's ministering to the people who have been completely ostracized for one reason or another from the mainstream of society. And, and not only that, I mean, he's not even an ascetic. You know, John was an ascetic. He starved himself and lived out in the desert. Hey, Jesus is like the party boy, right? Wherever Jesus goes, there's a party. In fact, it's so um, constant that the, the Pharisees accuse him of being a drunk and a glutton. Because wherever Jesus goes, parties erupt and he goes to these parties. So it's like, you know, John's like, what? I hand the ball to Jesus, you know, and then he just runs to the other end zone. I mean, he's, you're going the wrong way, Jesus. Where's the judgment? Where's the fire? Where is the winnowing and the dividing and the sifting? It doesn't make any sense from John's perspective. And even we as people who live in the kingdom of God, who are Christians, who call ourselves Christians, we have the same experience at times of looking at what Jesus is saying, looking at what the text says about life in the kingdom of God, and then comparing it to our lives and like John saying, this doesn't seem to add up. You know, Jesus says that, uh, that you know, he'll never leave us or forsake us. God tells us that. We're told that um, you know, God works all things together for the good of those who love him. We're told that, that if God is for us, who can be against us? And we look at all these things and we look at our lives and we say, you know, why would four children die after losing your son and after losing all of your real estate investments? This doesn't make any sense. How does that in Horatio Spafford's life fit with what the text says about what God, how much God loves his children? It doesn't seem to fit. Um, we get frustrated about something you know, in, in, in the church. Isn't Jesus the head of the church? Didn't Jesus say the gates of hell would not prevail against his church? So why do churches hit setbacks? Why are churches frustrated in their plans? Why do we uh, all know of one church here or there that just seems to never get out of the, the ditch? You know, in this church, it's like they hire a pastor and a year later they fire him. And they hire another pastor and two years later they fire him. Then they fire the youth pastor. And then, you know, there's this, and you hear about this church is always fighting and, and they believe the Bible and their doctrinal statement looks good, but something is just wrong. There's something sick in the church. And, and so you're like, Jesus, isn't this one of your people in some of your church? What's happening to your plan? What happens to your kingdom? Or we think about Jesus and his plans for the world and, Christ said that uh, all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him. Jesus said that the gospel would be preached to all the nations. And yet we look at the world and we see that 2.5 billion people on planet earth today have no legitimate access to the good news of Jesus. You know, like, what about Iran? What about Hamas? These people need Jesus. And yet it seems like there's no way it can get in there. 
And so you go, what is happening? Where is your kingdom going, Jesus? Are you really in control personally in our church, in our community, in, in Massachusetts, in the ends of the earth? Where is the kingdom of God? And so it's easy for us to doubt at times. And notice how Jesus responds. Jesus responds by giving us hope, but not answering all of our questions. Check it out, verse 21 and chapter 7. At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Which is a very funny verse. Blessed is the person who doesn't lose their faith because of what I do, Jesus says. Isn't that funny? Blessed is the person who doesn't stop, who, who keeps believing even though I'm doing what I'm doing. It's an interesting statement. In other words, sometimes what Jesus does and the way he works might cause us to lose faith if we hold to our expectations of how God should work instead of trusting his sovereignty and freedom. Sort of just an interesting sort of statement for Christ to make. So what does Jesus do? Notice two things. Two things in that little passage, verses 21 to 23. The first thing I notice is Jesus does not directly answer John's question. (laughs) And it vexes me. Why, why doesn't he just say to the messengers, yeah, go back and tell him I'm the Messiah. Go, yeah, go ahead. Yes, answers yes, I'm Messiah. Go ahead, tell him. He doesn't answer the question. He doesn't even answer the implicit question about the judgment issue. He doesn't even say, because will Jesus judge the nation someday? Yes. I mean, wait till we get to Luke chapter 11 to 13. There's all kinds of fire and judgment there coming from Jesus. So that's still part of the plan. It's just happening on a different timetable than John expected. Um, but Jesus doesn't explain that to John. He doesn't say, hey, look, go back and explain this to him. Right now is when the gospel is here, and then at the end of the age, the judgment will come, and it's kind of on a different timetable. So go back and tell John. He doesn't even tell him that. So he doesn't answer John's question directly. And I find that so often how it works in the Christian life. When we go through trials, difficulties, doubts, upsets, setbacks, God, what are you doing? Maybe some of you have gotten the voice. I never have. I'm not going to do anything, God, until you tell me. You're going to be standing there a long time. He's God. And part of being God is his freedom. That's the very essence of his divinity, is his freedom. He's not constrained. So he doesn't owe us an answer. And that ticks us off. Because we want an answer. And he doesn't have to give us one, and often he doesn't. Instead, God wants us to trust him, even without all the data points that I desire before making an informed decision. He wants me to trust him. Jesus does give an answer. He gives some evidence. That's the second thing I note. Even though he doesn't answer directly, he gives some other evidence that he is the Messiah. And that's, again, how I see God working in so many different situations. He doesn't often fix the problem. He doesn't offer the quest, answer the questions we have. But he will, over here, give a little evidence of his work, just enough so that I have grounds to continue believing that he's at work. And so often that's the way it works. And so what does Jesus say? He says, go back and tell him 
Verse 22, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor. In other words, uh, what Jesus is doing is he's listing, he's alluding to a bunch of Old Testament texts that also describe the ministry of the Messiah. So one of the things the Messiah is supposed to do is judge. The other thing the Messiah is supposed to do, or another thing, is to heal. And there's a bunch of a text, especially in Isaiah, that lists that. So he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm not doing the thing you're looking for, but look, I am doing some other things that are hallmarks of the Messiah's ministry. And if you want, you can look on the back of your sermon notes, and I've listed some of those texts where the Messiah is described as a healer and, and how healing in these very things are uh, attending his ministry. And so that's so often what God does. He doesn't answer our questions directly. He doesn't give us all the answers we want, but he wants us to trust him. We want information. God wants faith. And usually God wins. It's my experience. He wants us to trust him. And so he will give us some evidence over here to hold on to that, yes, he is still at work. Even though all this is going bad, this will be going good, and I'll know that God is still at work. You know, you, you can get frustrated at things in church. You, you know, why is this happening? Why is this not taking place? I thought this was supposed to be happening. Why is this not working in church? It's so frustrating. What's going on here, God? Are you still working in this church or not? And I can get all you know down about it. You know, looking at this over here. And then you hear a testimony like we heard this morning. It's like, is God at work? You know? God's like, Jeremy, I'm at work in my church. <clears throat> it's not your church, Jeremy. It's my church. And guess what? I'm still working in my church. And it may not be exactly the way you think I should be working or doing the things you think I should be doing, but my plan is moving forward. And you've got to pay more attention, boy. Look at what I'm doing. And so God is at work. And often it's it's imperceptible and it's hidden. And later on in Luke, we're going to come to some parables about the the hidden secret nature of, of the work of God's kingdom. That it didn't come with a bunch of pyrotechnics, but it came secretly, and it's it's growing slowly, and it's often not reported on CNN, and it's just it's happening slowly underground, but it's moving around the world. So God is at work, and I have to trust Him. I had a, an experience this week, sort of a personal one, uh, of just one of those, you know, what is God doing, and then God still gives you a little evidence. Uh, some of you know my uh, father is a cancer survivor uh, for about 10 years. He's uh, he's kidney cancer, and he had his kidney removed, and he's lived. Uh, for 10 years now, by God's grace. And uh, the, the cancer has come back a couple times, but by God's grace, it has come back in very uh, easy-to-get places. It hasn't gone to his organs or anything. It's sort of like come on his skin. For some reason, it pops into his skin where they can see it and they can get rid of it. So he had one in his chest. He had one in his cheek that was removed a couple years ago. But uh, just recently, like a couple weeks ago, he was kind of feeling around his cheek, and he kind of felt a little hard nod. He's like, I wonder if that's scar tissue or if that's a you know, tumor. So they said, well, we've got to take it out. So they took him in, I think it was about a week ago, and they, uh, they took this little thing out, and sure enough, it's the cancer again. So they take uh, margins, is what they call it. They take skin around the tumor to make sure they get all the cancer cells in case there's some like little loose ones sort of growing around in there. And none of the margins were clean either. So, you know, he's like, ah, oh, you know, what do I do? And he's worried, is it somewhere else? You know, you start freaking out. You know, if you've ever had the cancer experience, you just start extrapolating to the worst possible scenario. Is it in my brain? Is it in my spine? Is it in my lungs? Where is it? Where'd it go? It, you know, where is it in my body? So he's awaiting these tests. He doesn't know what the tests are going to show. Um, he doesn't know if they're going to have to do a more radical surgery. And so, you know, he's, he's pretty freaked out about it, like, as you can imagine. And he's a Christian. He knows the Lord. But as I was talking to him on the phone, he said, you know what? I did get a little piece of good news. I was talking to my surgeon, and my surgeon said, oh, by the way, you know, I'm best friends with the chief 
surgeon at UCLA who does this very type of, you know, surgery. And so if you want, I can, if you need him to, I can give him a call. And so, you know, that's how it works. God doesn't answer your questions. He doesn't, you know, always, every once in a while he'll do a miraculous healing, but he doesn't always miraculously heal. And so you go, what's going on, God? But then he'll give you one of those things where you're like, you know, he's still in control. I mean, look at that. That's, you know, look at that coincidence that this doctor knows one of the best guys at UCLA who does this kind of thing. And I'll give him a call. He's my best friend. And so, you know, and I talked to my dad. I said, you know, that's an evidence that God's still at work. And my, my dad's like, yeah, I know. I, I can tell that God is, is still in this. God gives us those evidences. But, you know, even if you can't see it, even if you can't see the evidences, and you, all you can see is just the clouds in your life and there's no gleams of sunlight coming through the clouds, we as Christians have a light that will never be extinguished. We have an evidence of the, of the victory of God that will never be overthrown by the evidences in front of us. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. We have the cross. And so when I doubt and when I wonder, is God still at work? Does God love me? Is His kingdom thwarted? Is this all a joke? I just have to go back to the cross. The cross is the ground of my faith. And I have to say, because Christ died, I know that God is at work. I mean, if there was ever a moment in human history to doubt the kingdom of God, it was at the cross. You know, the Messiah, nailed to a tree like a criminal, you know, pinned there and bleeding. It's like, this does not make any sense. If there was ever, hey, John, you know, you got some doubts now. Guess what? He's going to be crucified. What? Oh, he's definitely not the Messiah then. The Messiah doesn't get crucified. The Messiah whoops on people. He doesn't get crucified. If there was ever a time to doubt that God's kingdom was moving forward, it was when Christ was crucified. And yet that was the moment of God's greatest victory. Just when we thought it was all over, that's when God was going boom on the kingdom of darkness. Boom on our sins. And every, every hammer on that nail was a hammer not into Christ, but against the kingdom of darkness. And it was being overthrown pound by pound. And as Christ suffered, He was achieving victory. And it blows my mind that in the moment of greatest weakness, was the great moment of greatest victory because on the cross, Jesus was being crucified for my sins, which is the nub of the problem, my sin. And my sin was put on Jesus and Jesus' righteousness and purity was put on me. And so I have hope of eternal life and you can have hope of eternal life too. You can know that you're saved. You can know that you're going to heaven. Not because you did any rituals. Not because you were baptized as an infant or an adult. Not because of the sacraments of the church. Not by being a good person. The only way you can know you have eternal life is if you put all your hope in the death of Christ on the cross for you. Because the blood of Jesus washes away all sin. And so, we have this confidence. You could take away my job. You can see your church go south. You can uh, you know, take away my health. You can take away your ravishing good looks. You can take away your family. You can take away, you know, whatever. Your motorcycle. I mean, it can all go away. And as a Christian, I will still not doubt because I just have to go back to the cross. The cross is the ground of my being and my faith and all of my identity in Christ. And you cannot take the cross away from me. Because it is done. It is finished. And so I, I cling to the cross for all of my hope. And you know, in that moment of, of uh, dread when Horatio Spafford learned that his family, his four daughters, had drowned, uh, that's what kept him going, was the cross. 
he then got on a boat. He sailed to England to meet his grieving wife. And as he was sailing over the ocean, the uh, off the coast of Newfoundland, the captain called him up onto the bridge and he said, Mr. Spafford, he says, you know, we can never be absolutely certain where the ship went down. He says, but based upon our best calculations, uh, right now we are sailing over the spot. And so, you know, there he was uh, over that water watching those those waves roll along. And, uh, you know, I could just imagine as a dad, you know, just trying to fight the images of your daughters drowning, imagining your daughters lying at the bottom of the abyss, just fighting off those images and trying to trust God in the midst of that. And it was there on that ocean that Horatio Spafford began to draft a poem in his mind. He started drafting this poem, and it it had to do with God's faithfulness and trusting in God amidst the storms. And so he wrote this poem down, and then he sent it back to his buddy in Chicago, who was a composer, Philip Bliss. And Philip Bliss turned the poem into a hymn. And it's actually a, a hymn that you may know. It's in our hymnal. In fact, open up your hymnal to hymn number 705. This is the poem that was turned into a hymn. Hymn number 705. Look at the bottom left-hand corner. Text. Horatio Gates Spafford. Music Philip Bliss. And he wrote this poem. Now think about him writing this poem while standing on the deck of that ship. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And what gave him confidence to trust God in the midst of that grieving? It was the cross. He went back to the cross. Look at verse 2. Though Satan should buffet, there's these storm images, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. What's his assurance? That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. That's what gave him confidence. And then in the third verse, he just goes all into the cross. It's all about the cross. In fact, let's, let's sing it together, okay? My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. It is well with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. And so Jesus commanded us to commemorate his death through communion. Jesus gave two ordinances, two sacraments to the church, and we got to see them both today. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. And both of them picture the death of Christ. In baptism, we picture the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And in communion, the bread symbolizes His body that was broken and the cup symbolizes His blood that was shed. 
And so uh, I'd like to ask uh, one of our elders to come, Bob Crawford, if you could come. And uh, Bob is going to lead us in uh, the Lord's table today. Thanks, brother. Good morning. The promises of God um, in the adversity of life. Think about it. They're, they're difficult things to resolve a lot of the time. And, and we go through our lives many times trying to, um, trying to resolve that. The Lord's Supper is awesome. It is deep. It's mighty. It's really an incredible thing. And, and Jeremy in his message this morning really you know, talked a lot about it. The, the Lord's Supper is, is a picture of Christ's death. He went to the cross. He carried that wood. He walked up that hill. He was put up on that cross with common thieves. And it's a pretty grim, awful sight, really. And that's the moment when all of his disciples and all of the people that he administered to would certainly doubt the whole thing. They would doubt what he said. They would doubt... uh, really everything that he came for and stood for. And they would doubt probably even the existence of God. That was the time. His body was put on that cross. It was broken. It was beaten. That's what the broken bread represents. He was pierced when he was on the cross. Guard came and pierced his side, and out came blood and water, as the scripture says. So he shed his blood for us. The cup, the pouring out of the cup, is that uh, is is that shed blood for us? Why did he go to the cross? Well, he went to the cross for us. So that's the light. That's the beautiful light at the end of this dark, grim scene. He went there for us. He took the sin of the world. He took all of our wickedness and sinfulness, and for future generations to come as well. He took all of that. He took it upon himself, and. He went there. It wasn't just the physical death, because lots of people have died over the centuries for causes and for uh, in the time of war and in battle. Lots of people have, have died physical deaths. But Christ not only did that in in his humanity, but he took upon himself our sin. And, and that was the burden. That was the tremendous burden. So who's the beneficiary but us? You know, we're the ones who really... Uh, share in in the beautiful thing that he did because he went to the cross for us. So those of us who believe in him and who know him as our personal savior, uh, we share in that. You know, the bread and the cup is is not only spiritual food, but it's physical food as well, certainly, but it's spiritual food. That's That's the precious nature of this. It cleanses our soul. It's a refreshing drink. It's Christ's broken body. He gives it to us, and we can take it. And by taking that cup and by eating that bread, we act as the beneficiary of this whole thing. So we're accepting that, and that's what that's a symbol of. Look around. You know, you see this uh, large group today in this uh, body of believers, and uh, we're here together. There is a unity there. It's a beautiful thing, really. And, uh, you know, we think of all the other meetings and things we do in life and and the... uh, things that we're involved in all week long. Um, Sure, those are things that we need to do, but at the same time, uh, this is a body of believers. We share special things. We have special things in common, ultimate things, heavenly things, eternal things. So, uh, therefore, as Paul 
says, as Jeremy talks about. We say, therefore, this is a rich, deep, beautiful uh, thing that we do here today, the Lord's Supper. And uh, it's with great joy and thanksgiving that we can, uh, that we can enter into this. At Social Baptist, we preach uh, and, and teach open uh, communion. So if you're a believer and uh, you're free to take communion, and we encourage you to do that. If you're not a believer, uh, you can participate as well by simply observing the, uh, the process. Okay. I'd like to just read some scripture here. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me.